the Gospel of Luke uh, is a careful investigation of all the available data that emerged around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Luke was a doctor and historian, and he did his research. And then he produced, we're told in the very beginning of the gospel, a carefully written narrative to help us answer the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And as a church, we've been studying this book off and on for quite some time. And so now we are picking it back up, and we will be in it until the fall. Um, If you're new to St. Pete's, uh, you don't need to go back and listen to all, I think it's like 46 sermons. Uh, They're all online. You can listen to them. But we try to also let each sermon stand on its own as well. So you're able to just jump in with us today. You're not going to be too lost. But we have been encouraging people to start a practice of handwriting the entire Gospel of Luke. And this is a way of really dwelling with the text. Uh, Anybody fall behind on this practice? All of us? Great. So that could be a practice that you join us with, and that could be a practice that all of us resume, is handwriting the Gospel of Luke, because it's a way of really paying attention to the details. Uh, The last passage we studied in Luke was chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, and it overlaps a little bit with what we just read. And if you were going to go back and listen to just one sermon, I would say, go and listen to that sermon, because in this passage... The core question behind the gospel rises to the surface. Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them point blank, who do you say that I am? As we just heard in our reading, Jesus, he wasn't preoccupied with what the political figures were saying about him. He wasn't concerned about the crowds. It didn't matter. It was time for the disciples to answer for themselves. And Peter pipes up and he says, you're the Messiah of God. And as quickly as Peter offers an answer, Jesus offers a redefinition. Yes, Jesus, he is the Messiah. He's not the Messiah commonly imagined in the public of Israel. Because as the Messiah, he'll suffer, he'll be rejected, he'll be killed, and he will be raised to life. This is how the everlasting kingdom of God will be established on earth. Not through a zealous political figure, but through a suffering servant. So yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but not the Messiah you expected, Peter. And so Peter and all the other disciples listening in, they're going to need to readjust their expectations. But as soon as they start to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Jesus connects some dots for them right away, and that's where we're going to focus this morning. After the announcement of his suffering and death, essentially, after Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified, he begins to speak of another cross, the cross of discipleship. And so this is a really paradigm-shifting passage for discipleship, for what it means to follow Jesus. What we see is Christology, who Jesus is, is inseparably connected to discipleship. So Christianity is not just about having an answer to the question, who is Jesus? It's not just getting your theology down, as important as that is. Everything we believe about Jesus has implications for how we live our lives here on earth. If we see who Jesus is, it shapes how we follow him. And if we see who Jesus is, not only do we have to recalibrate our expectations about who he is, we also have to recalibrate our expectations about following him. Because his life shapes our discipleship. 
And so what I want to do this morning uh, is not give you three points. We're just going to work our way through the passage. So open up your Bible to Luke chapter 9. It's going to be on the screen behind me. If you don't own a Bible, please go to the connection table and take one of our Bibles. Take it home with you. Here's what we read in our passage. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. And Jesus strictly warned them to tell this to, uh, not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, your life will be shaped after his. This is the crux of discipleship. Discipleship is shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But here in our passage, Jesus, he doesn't connect the dots between his resurrection and discipleship as other passages do in Scripture. Here, Jesus connects the dots between his death and discipleship. Of course, the resurrection has much to say about our new life in Christ, but the cross of Christ also has much to say about our experience as disciples. And so what we have to understand, if we want to follow Jesus, is that discipleship is cross-shaped. There's no getting around it. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Doesn't that make you ask, like, why would you sign up for this kind of spiritual life? Like, why not choose something more convenient as a spiritual path? I mean, why not pick up something that's more about your self-fulfillment or attaining your goals or having, like, some sort of blissful experience? Why not? Because according to Jesus, to become his disciple requires three things. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow him. And so this cross-shaped spirituality of discipleship, it's costly. It's costly, but it's worth it too. It's true. It's costly, but it's worth it. And I just want to help us see that by looking at the three things Jesus asks of us. Let's start with this. Deny yourself. What's that all about? Deny yourself. Now, you might think, deny yourself, Jesus is calling us to some extreme aestheticism. And if that word means nothing to you, well, then you're not worried about it. But aestheticism is this extreme lifestyle characterized by refraining or even abstaining from all pleasure and delight. All the good things of the earth are just distractions. You need to remove yourself so you can be exclusively focused on God. For example, there's Simeon the Stylite, pretty sweet name. Uh, he was a monk who lived in the 5th century, and he was so dedicated to his lifestyle of aestheticism that he actually became a discouragement to all the other monks in the monastery. He took the denial so seriously that they asked him to move out. <laughs> and so for the next 37 years, Simeon the Stylite lived in the desert on top of a 60-foot pole. And at night, he would chain himself to it so he wouldn't fall off. So we hear deny yourself, and our minds can go extreme, like Simeon the Stylite, extreme. We hear deny yourself, and we're worried that Jesus wants us to exclude ourselves from all earthly pleasure or enjoyment for the sake of more heavenly aspirations. 
Anybody ever have that worry? If I follow Jesus, I won't get to enjoy life. And there's some truth to this. God certainly wants to redirect our lives away from things that don't ultimately give us life or foster a healthy attachment to God. But even so, when Jesus says, deny yourself, he's not calling us to this sort of extreme lifestyle of Simeon the stylite. He's actually asking for something else altogether. Or maybe you hear the call to deny yourself as a call to transcend yourself. Uh, the spiritual path of Buddhism, for example, is to rise beyond the self and the desires. And so you use the self to transcend the self and in the pursuit of nirvana, which means blown out. And so what you're actually seeking to attain on this path is the bliss of non-existence by extinguishing the self. But Jesus doesn't ask us to extinguish ourselves. I remember I was in a class in seminary, and someone suggested that denying yourself here might actually be closer to Buddhist spirituality. And my professor, who had actually this really quiet demeanor, became really lively all of a sudden, and so it caught us by surprise, and we just really listened in, and he said, whatever commonality Christianity has with Buddhism or other religions, and it's there, this is not one. Scripture says the self is an indestructible gift that's to be liberated and redeemed, not eliminated. You cannot deny yourself away. So if denying ourselves isn't this call to aestheticism, if it isn't this call to transcend the self, what is Jesus asking? The Greek word for deny is disown to disown a relationship. So to deny ourselves is actually to disown ourselves. Anyone ever have a moment where you actually do want to disown yourself? Like you put your foot in your mouth, you're like, I disown that person and everything they just said. That's kind of the idea. You step to the side and you decenter yourself so that someone else can stand at the center of your life. The Croatian theologian uh, Miroslav Volf, he uses the phrase, decenter yourself. When you hear deny yourself, think decenter yourself. You're stepping aside so someone else can take the center of your existence. Wolf says, we have a wrongly centered self that needs to be decentered by being nailed to the cross. The self is never without a center. It's always engaged in the production of its own center. And so what we're trying to do by decentering ourselves is put something else in the production line. We're stepping aside to let another one take center stage. Because the self is never without a center. And so we say, Jesus, we want you to be at the center of our lives. I saw this meme this week that's really unrelated, but it made me laugh. It, it said, stop asking Jesus to take the wheel. There wasn't cars back then. It's just like Jesus behind a car looking really afraid. <laughs> the tension of divinity and humanity, all in a meme. But there's truth to that Jesus take the wheel idea. The idea is we're going to step to the side, we're going to disown ourselves, and we're asking Jesus to become the center of our lives. This is what it means to deny ourselves. We are denying the right to live our lives as if they're solely for ourselves and what we please, and instead we're living for the will of another. And so the question behind the command to deny yourself is this. Who is your primary allegiance to? Jesus or yourself. But we also have to be careful not to 
run this passage through our hyper-individualistic lens. Because the disciples who are listening to Jesus, this would be even more costly than just them stepping aside because they lived in a communal reality. So what they would be hearing Jesus saying is, decenter yourself from all of your background, all of your relationships, everything that makes up who you are, and center yourself around this new identity in me with my community of disciples. So the question isn't just who is your primary allegiance to, yourself or Jesus, but is it to Jesus and his community of disciples who are seeking to follow him? Are you going to leave behind yourself and other sources of identity, and are you going to turn to Jesus and his band of followers? But I want to point out that self-denial, stepping aside, it's, just, it's not just removing ourselves from something. That's where we get caught up. We think about all the things we're going to lose, all the things we have to step aside from. It's also denying ourselves for someone and the things that person has for us. So unlike aestheticism, denying ourselves actually doesn't rule out the possibility of enjoying life. I want you to take a breath and and breathe in a sigh of relief. Jesus is not some sort of cosmic buzzkill that wants to keep you in the doldrums. Christianity is best characterized not by a frown, but by a smile. And that smile is on the face of God shining upon us in Christ. Everything, everything, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected, provided it is received with thanksgiving, writes the Apostle Paul. So when Jesus takes center stage in our lives, it means... We learn to deny ourselves from unhealthy desires, from the misuse of all that life has to offer. Yes, it means there's some things we can't do, but we also discover how to rightly enjoy life and the gifts of life with a posture of thanksgiving. Because everything in life, from the breath in our lungs to salvation, is pure gift. And here's what's beautiful about denying ourselves then. We move away from a lifestyle of entitlement and living for ourselves, and what's cultivated in us is something profoundly beautiful and life-altering. Gratitude. Gratitude. All of life is gift to be received when you deny yourself. If you don't deny yourself, all of life is something you're entitled to attain. It's also important for us to see That self-denial for Jesus is better than transcendence or attaining non-existence. And look, I'm not trying to slag on Buddhism or any of those, those movements. There's good to be affirmed. But there's something distinct and different that also needs to be named. Because Jesus affirms the utter goodness of existence. So this includes yourself and the world. Yes, the world and everyone in it needs to be redeemed and healed. But the goal of everything Jesus accomplished on the cross is what? A new heavens and a new earth marked by love and peace and joy and the goodness of God permeating everything. So our future is not the obliteration of the self in this world. It's the profound affirmation and healing of humanity for a new creation. And it's beginning in the midst of this old one. Jesus Christ is an utter yes to your existence and the existence of this world. 
So the call to deny ourselves, it's this invitation to step aside, let Jesus take center stage, center your life around him, and then you'll discover how to truly enjoy life because of the utter goodness of existence affirmed in Christ and his redemptive work. Deny yourself. Step one. Step two. Take up your cross daily. First step sounds a lot easier, doesn't it? Have you ever heard someone sigh, just like, <sighs> about like a less than ideal parking spot, or <sighs> like someone's just a minor irritant, irritant in their life. Even my dog, like, <sighs> you're a dog, like what are you sighing about? They sigh about a burden, <sighs> and then they say, it's just the cross I have to bear. My dog did that. I'm like, what are you doing? Take up your cross. Like, it becomes this kind of flippant, kind of Christianese weird remark. It's just the cross I have to bear. You were crucified with nails bearing that annoying person? Come on, they're not that annoying. But maybe we like to reduce the, 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 the weight and the, the uncomfortableness of this metaphor, because if we stay with it, it's actually really quite gruesome, isn't it? Take up our cross? Take up the beams of torture? Take up the instrument of ancient Rome's power against dissidents? Take up all the shame associated with this execution? Take up the slow and agonizing death? And this was no abstract image for the disciples of Jesus. They would have seen this firsthand. They knew that when a man from their village put on a cross and went with a little band of Roman soldiers, that person was on a one-way journey. Take up our cross? What does Jesus mean exactly? First, let me say, and I hope if you remember anything about this sermon, it's this. Only Jesus can carry his cross. What Jesus accomplished on his cross is not what we accomplish on our own. Only Jesus could bear the sins of the world in his body on that tree. But because of his cross the shape of our cross and our discipleship of following him finds its way. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. So this can't be a reference to martyrdom, because guess what? You can only do that once. This daily reminder is that this is a metaphor, and there's something about the cross that shapes how we should live every single day. So I want to be clear. Since this is a metaphor, God is not masochistic. He takes no delight in the death of his son. He takes no delight in the torture of people. God is not out for you to be tortured, to be abused, to be harmed in his name. And anytime that happens, it's blasphemy. We should think of it this way. Day after day, every day, we all have our morning routine, don't we? You wake up, you hit snooze. You hit it again and again and again. Jen Ma told me she hit it 15 times this morning. You have a shower, you brush your teeth, you get dressed, you eat breakfast, you pour yourself a coffee, perhaps you read, ideally scripture, and you pray. Or perhaps you sleep into the last minute, you throw in some clothes, you dash in here, and you get here just after the announcements. Or perhaps children climb on you and you don't get to eat until they're fed and you don't get to shower until they nap, which is never, because children, why don't you nap? 
Whatever it is, we all have our morning routines, and often how the day begins can give shape to how the day unfolds, right? Not always, but sometimes. If you start off on the right foot, sometimes it helps you face whatever the day may hold. We wake up, and before anything else, before our feet touch the floor, Jesus wants us to take up the cross daily, day after day. And this is what he wants to give shape to how our days unfold. And so if denying ourselves is stepping aside and making Jesus the center of our lives, then taking up a cross is about following in his footsteps. Taking up a cross is about radical surrender to the upside-down way of God's kingdom. We give our allegiance to Jesus by denying ourselves, and we follow him by taking up a cross. Jesus took up a cross, a tool of Rome's coercive power and a symbol of shame and defeat. And Jesus carried this cross in weakness and he died, but we're told this was actually the power of God at work. As the Apostle Paul puts it, the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Because God's power isn't like Rome or human power. It's not coercive. It's not abusive. It's not self-seeking. It's a power that empties itself for the sake of others. It's a power that works through weakness to transform the world. So every day we take up our cross, we have to make a decision. What world will you live in? The world of human power that exercises power through torture and cross-bearing and coercion or God's power that takes these abusive forms of power upon himself and in weakness transforms the world through a self-surrendering, sacrificial power. Which world will you live in? Our daily cross reminds us that if Jesus is the center of our lives, then we're walking in this upside-down kingdom where weakness is actually power. And so we can't be Christians and walk with a strut. We must limp, and it's okay. Because in weakness, we discover that God is, in fact, establishing his kingdom on earth. And our daily cross then reminds us to choose the ways of God's kingdom over the ways of the world, over the ways of culture, over the ways of politics, over the ways of human striving and power. So discipleship then involves three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and three, follow Jesus. And at this point of the journey, we need to remember that the disciples at this stage of their journey with Jesus... They really don't get what Jesus is going on about. A Messiah that dies and rises, like what? A cross-shaped journey? Like we have a point of reference that makes that at least make some sense. They have no idea. They think Jesus is calling them to martyrdom. This got real all of a sudden. And here's what I want to remind us. When we jump into any place of scripture, we always need to keep the whole story in mind. If we only hold this moment, discipleship doesn't make a ton of sense. We're just going to be perpetually perplexed. And so we need to keep in mind the arc of the disciples' journey with Jesus. So I want to jump ahead a bit in the story. Because the disciples in our passage that are listening to Jesus, hearing these huge requests from Jesus, with all the odds stacked against them, because they are a ragtag group, weren't they? They actually walk in this path of cross-bearing discipleship, which means... We can too. I love how Willie Jennings sees discipleship in the book of Acts. 
So Jesus has died. He's been raised from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of God, and he sends the Spirit. All of a sudden, we see disciples. And here's what Jennings says. Almost no one is doing what they want to do. The Spirit of God is pressing every disciple to do precisely what God wants done and not what they might envision. Nobody is doing what they want to do. I have not forgotten that since reading it. This is what it looks like when people deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. They become living answers to the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done in their lives. And in the book of Acts, it looks like a few things. The gospel's proclaimed. People are healed. A new countercultural community is formed that shares its resources with one another and cares for the vulnerable and the poor and the marginalized. And they gather together regularly for the Lord's Supper, breaking bread and praying and teaching. Nobody's doing what they want to do, but the Spirit of God is breathing life into them. Because denial is not just from things, but for someone. And I want us to see that we are denying ourselves for delight. We're denying ourselves for delight. Uh, the pastor, Glenn Packiam, he says this, Discipleship is spirit-empowered delight in the way of Jesus. You see, following Jesus is not possible apart from the power of his spirit. The spirit of God, says Jennings, is pressing every disciple to do precisely what God wants done and not what they may envision. We can't do this on our own, can we? I think discipleship is a lot like taking a beach ball and trying to hide, like, hold it under the waves. Like We can do it for a while by our own willpower and strength. We might even sit on it and think we've got it down and then it pops up onto the surface, Right? So it is with our efforts to become disciples of Jesus by our own strength alone. We might do well for a while at it. We might look the part. We might see some measurable moments of self-improvement, but eventually the ball surfaces again and we fall. If we want to become followers of Jesus, our discipleship is patterned after his life. In fact, it shares in his life. Because the spirit of the living God takes residence in his body in each and every single person who has faith in Christ. The spirit of God empowers your discipleship. There's no other way. And as the spirit dwells in us, discipleship then is not just a begrudging duty, but also delight. That's not to say it's not without struggle or hardship or suffering or persecution. But it is to say that even in those things, God promises that he's walking with us and teaches us to delight even in the hardship. Because what do we see in the book of Acts other than the fulfillment of Jesus' promise? When you're persecuted for my sake, rejoice and be glad that you get to share in my sufferings. And that's what we see happening in his disciples. It's not natural. It's a movement of his spirit. And so we can't do this without his spirit. But as the spirit dwells in us, delight can mark the footsteps we take toward Christ. 
But I want to recognize that delight isn't what comes to mind naturally, is it? Because if we really want to follow Jesus, it will at times feel like we're losing our lives. This is what Jesus says. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And living for ourselves is so deeply instilled in us, we can really believe, even as Christians, in our heart of hearts, that life is actually about making the most of the time we have here on earth, making the most of it for ourselves. And this call to decenter ourselves, it can feel then like we're going to miss out, that we're going to be held back, that we'll be making a mistake and not pursuing what culture tells us is the good life. And so this denial doesn't appear to be for delight, it seems to be for loss. But if we try to save ourselves in this respect, if we try to hold on to our lives with a tight grip, if we try to remain the center and keep Jesus to the side, Jesus says you will lose your life. And at this point, Jesus asks a zinger of a question. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose and forfeit their very self? What gain to draw in a lottery, a gallery of pictures, writes the Swiss theologian Godet, and at the same time to become blind? Of course, we're clever people, and so we might think, hey, we can game the system. I'll gain the world and not lose myself in the process. I'll maintain integrity. I'll gain the world for the sake of serving others. But I think we should be very cautious when versions of this thought cross our mind. Because Jesus makes it clear, if we're going to save ourselves, if we're going to try to save our lives in the form of gaining the world, you can't do it. You will lose yourself. Because you'll be in opposition to the ways of the kingdom. And you're going to ultimately lose yourself because you cannot cling to this world and Jesus at the same time. So you can cling to Jesus and gain all that he has, or you can cling to the world and lose it all. And so Jesus asks, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose and forfeit their very self? And, and I think he asks this because he knows like the shape of discipleship is costly, but it is not nearly as costly as the alternative. Jesus goes on to say verses 26 through 27, which I want to guess quite a few of us wish weren't in the Bible. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So I realize this might not land well. Jesus saying he'll be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. I got to be honest, I wrestle with reading these words. But Jesus isn't shifting gears on us here for no good reason. He wants to stress the eternal significance of following him. He's not just a teacher with some ideas for us to improve our lives. He is a savior with teachings to save our lives. Jesus says outright, he's full of glory. He has an, a, he has an equal glory of God the Father. We're not just invited to follow a merely human, I can't speak, human Messiah. We are following none other than God in Christ. God made one of us. 
We're invited to follow God himself, the glory of God in our midst. And Jesus says, some of my disciples who are standing here, you're not going to die before you see the kingdom of God. And this is a bridge to what happens next in Luke, by the way, the transfiguration. They see the kingdom of God in Christ. The veil is pulled back. They see the glory of Christ. And we're told the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Sometimes we want to quibble with the things Jesus says. We take issue over the weight of his words. I just want to say sometimes we need to take them at face value, even if they make us uncomfortable. Because the one speaking is full of God's glory. The one speaking, this is the voice of God. And he says, if we're ashamed of him and his words, he will be ashamed of us. If we choose gaining the world over the path of discipleship, we're ashamed of Jesus. We might not see it that way, but this is how Jesus sees it, according to Matthew. Because we're not holding fast to his words, we're holding fast to ourselves and the temporary life on earth. And so we can't save ourselves. There's no saving power in ourselves or the world. The only saving power of God is in Christ. If you hold fast to his words, you will be saved. You see, when we lose our lives, when we accept the loss of our radical individualism in the pursuit of self-fulfillment, when we accept that life is not about ourselves, that life is not about what we can achieve or gain or experience, that it is not about making the most of it while you have it, when you decenter yourself for Jesus, he saves your life. As he says, whoever loses their life for me will save it. But it just brings us to one last thought. How? I want to make it really clear. As disciples, we are only walking down a path pioneered and paved by Christ our Savior. He's the one who denied himself and only ever did what the Father willed for his life. He's the one who took up a cross, bore our sins in his body on that tree to create a new creation of liberation and freedom. I think when we sit with this, we're going to see a few things. First, this is where the power of God is on display. In the cross of Christ. God has opened something there that cannot be closed. This is the power of God. And there is grace in this power. There is comfort in this power. There is a gentleness in this power. It's power. It's like the ocean. The ocean has a magnitude of fearful power, and yet when you receive the waves of the ocean on the shore, they can be gentle and calming. And you might think, I'm failing so much as a disciple. I've tried and tried, and I just can't seem to do it. But the waves of grace come and come and come. You cannot out-sin grace. You cannot become unworthy of God's comfort because God has opened up the power of salvation for all who believe in faith through the cross of Christ. And there is great freedom in his presence. You don't have to be imprisoned. And when we come to Christ and receive this power that he's opened up for us, these waves of grace empower us for the journey. 
so you can live gently. You can love greatly. And you can stomp hard on this path of discipleship. Because we're not saved by our self-denial or taking up our cross. We're saved by the one we follow. And so it's true. The cross-shaped spirituality of following Jesus, it's costly, but it is worth it. Because we're denying ourselves for him. And while we may never gain the world, we gain God in Christ. We gain the salvation of our lives and life in the world to come that then shapes our lives in this world as it decays. So will you deny yourself? Will you pick up your cross daily? Will you follow Jesus? Don't forfeit your life trying to gain this world. Save your life by gaining Christ, and everything else will follow suit.